Jack Teixeira, the Air National Guard member, recently joined a long list of military and civilian employees who blithely gave away classified documents. A federal judge let Teixeira hire a private attorney with experience in national security cases. Here with analysis of what this might mean, Tully Rinky managing partner Dan Meyer. Dan, good to have you back. Glad to be here, Tom. Your firm, just in putting out some uh, ideas on this, said that the judge has allowed him to hire a private attorney. Is that itself remarkable in a case like this? Well, uh, maybe that's a little over dramatic. I think that you should not read too much into that, meaning how critical the government's prosecution of him is going to be. Hiring an attorney does not mean that you're armoring up for a criminal defense. Uh, Certainly with a case involving classified information, it's smart for public employees, and he is a public employee, a service member is a public employee, to have counsel about the classified information aspects of uh, what he's facing. And that will be equally helpful for him, both if he faces a criminal prosecution and if it's uh, simply restrained and left at the administrative level. But it does show that he at least is understanding how deep the water he's waded into is. Right. Do we know who the lawyer is, and what do we know about that lawyer's record in these types of cases? That lawyer is not on my Rolodex, and I think that from what I've been able to Google, the person does seem uh, reasonably well-qualified to give him advice. And so I think that it's smart to armor up with an attorney, whether it's administrative or criminal. If it goes to an Espionage Act prosecution, that's when a defendant needs to think really carefully about who their counsel is. I think this would also apply to a certain former president who's uh, handling issues right now. Because when you enter the criminal prosecution realm, penalties are that much higher. When you're talking prison time, and that's when you want to think twice about uh, the quality of your legal uh, team. But this attorney has won hundreds of counts of acquittal on Guantanamo Bay detainees. Does that have relevance here? Uh, I I sort of raised my eyebrows at that. Yes, that, that shows that there's a good proficiency with military law, and that's important in this aspect because Teixeira is under uh, either Article 32 or Article 10 as a uh, service member. Uh, so I think for prosecution under the UCMJ, Uh, or a criminal prosecution in the civilian courts uh, that's parallel to that, that would be a good person to have on your legal team. That attorney, if they do not feel comfortable with the classified information aspects of this case, could certainly reach out and get co-counsel to bridge the gap on that expertise. I mean, this line of discussion is not unlike the situation down in Florida with the judge who's handling the Trump trial. Everybody wants to sort of jump in and say, well, that person is not qualified. The bottom line is when you have a law license, it's your job to get the client the representation they need if you can't bridge the skills with with your own skills, if you have a gap. So I'm sure that attorney will be smart and reach out and get co-counsel if he or she needs it. Yeah, this is Michael Bockrock of Manhattan, and he's the one that's gotten all of these acquittals. But what is that going to cost, do you think? And how would a guy like Jack Teixeira, who's not all that sympathetic, I don't think he's going to be getting lots of money on GoFundMe for his defense, maybe, pay for someone? Well, actually, Tom, I got an opinion on that one right there. The question then becomes who's paying for the legal counsel. You know, there's rules. The bar has rules about people paying for legal services for individuals who are not actual individual. Uh, He may be getting support from uh, groups. Uh, There was some murmuring. I haven't seen it followed up on that. Some people thought he was perhaps a whistleblower. I haven't seen that in the facts. 
I haven't seen the evidence of what he was posting and what he was posting about. Uh, there was some question about whether he was challenging the Ukraine policy <laughs> as a, a National Guardsman from Massachusetts. So there are aspects of that which could lend itself to what's called campaign funding. And so maybe he will get uh, support from an outside group to do that. And, you know, this gets into an area where, you know, whistleblowing has been considered sort of a four-letter word <laughs> since the impeachment debate. But uh, you need to be careful about classifying people as not being a whistleblower before you know all the facts. And the critical question that the share case is what was his intent in doing this? I think as an investigator, I would want to know, uh, is this uh, sort of uh, boasting uh, that he had access to the information? Was this just trying to be part of an online community? All of those present very serious security concerns. Sure. But you want to know what that intent was before... Uh, you line up the defense and certainly before you go forward with a prosecution. We're speaking with Dan Meyer, managing director of the law firm Tully Rinky. And that question of whistleblower, I mean, whistleblowers report to specific places if they think there's wrongdoing. And those don't mean posting to shadowy groups online. That's not where any legitimate whistleblower would go. Same thing with Edward Snowden. You know, well, Government afterwards later said, well, maybe the we had to have this debate. This was what one of the intelligence leaders said. But if he had a legitimate whistleblower complaint about wrongdoing, you go to the agency head and then you go to the Office of Special Counsel or whatever. There are places that can handle it. And those are legal procedures. Just blabbing it to the press or to online, that's not whistleblowing, really. Tom, you're well studied on this. And uh, thank you for putting that out there because all federal employees need to understand that this is not the 1970s, and you are not Daniel Ellsberg. Rest in peace, he passed away just recently. Right. So the rules coming out of Watergate were just wild, wild west, and Congress stepped in with the Whistleblower Protection Act and the Military Whistleblower Protection Act, and, and then eventually President Obama extended it to classified information with a document called PPD-19, and there were statutory amendments that basically said that for the purposes of classified information, which this involved, you cannot be a whistleblower unless you go through the prescribed procedures to the prescribed entities to receive the disclosure. Now, we should also remember for unclassified information under Title V, just everyday corruption, federal employees can still go to the media for, with that. You have to have certain permissions, but that's still a wide open area. It's dangerous, but it's not like classified information like the, the Tishkara case. Right. And of course, whistleblowing doesn't necessarily coincide with, well, I don't agree with our foreign policy, but that doesn't mean the government is you know, somehow subverting justice or stealing or taking bribes or committing false claims act if you're a company. I mean, you know, there are areas here. So I guess the other question is with security clearance and who the military grants these to, how could this case maybe have that rethought? So after 9-11, we expanded the number of security clearances. Things got out of control, okay? There's no question about it. It became sort of sexy, to use a probably not a great term, but it's true. Sexy for federal administrators and managers and leaders to have a lot of cleared people underneath them. So the security state expanded, and we classified far more positions that probably had to be classified. We started classifying every piece of information on a federal computer system. So this meant that more and more people had to have access to classified information. And they 
the way these systems are even closed systems, the way they're open within their closed context, that means that very junior people could sometimes have access to information they did not need to see. And I saw this in spades in the intelligence community. I have always tried to stay away from classified information I don't need to see. But I had coworkers who would get in early just to go watch the latest videos, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just a prescription for disaster. So they know they need to dial back. I think you'll see a reclassification of positions. I think you'll see a downgrading positions. Even more importantly, I think you'll see a, a beefing up of monitoring, internal monitoring within the federal process. We've moved to continuous evaluation, continuous monitoring. So the old standard six, eight, 10 year background investigation periodicity is slowly going away and people will be monitored on an ongoing basis. And if your profile is problematic, you will come up for review before your coworker whose profile is not. To give it in an unrelated field, I think this is really fascinating. If you win or lose more than 10,000 in winnings at a casino, uh, there's an automatic email prompt that goes to your security officer now. That didn't happen uh, 10 or 15 years ago. You would have had to report that, but that will go automatically. Wow. All right. So, yeah, always in flux, this whole domain, fair to say. Well, that, and then also the disseminators of classified information have to kind of think through where they're putting stuff. The problem with a networked system is that you can get access to it from lots of different places. And I really have questions about why that information was where he could get access to it. You know, within the intelligence community, this is pretty much a lockdown process and you have to have an aberrant person wanting to walk it out the door. But once you get outside the intelligence community, it is relatively wide open and there has been fear of the Defense Department generally within the intelligence community for a long time. Sharing information becomes problematic because, frankly, the Pentagon can be sloppy with classified information. Dan Meyer is managing director of the law firm Tully Rinke. Thanks so much. All right. Anytime, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S., 
How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and 
began to talk with him about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling. It, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.